This is a Radio.com original. And Walt's on the phone for you. So David has to climb down. And he said, yeah, what's up? He says, I'm down here at the front gate, and my grandchildren haven't shown up. I can't go through the parade without any kids. Did you bring your kids? <laughs> and, so, and, and so he says, sure. I'll send you a couple you were, you were standing. Yeah, so I'll send a couple down to the front gate. Everybody and welcome to a new edition of Talking About Cars, the podcast where it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities and more. I'm Randy Cardoon. Coming up, a tale of 50s and 60s TV, buying brand new Fords for a crisp $1 bill, driving the original Autopia cars at Disneyland. How a lobbyist who represented gas-guzzling vehicles learned to love the hybrid and being the son of a famous actor, as well as writing a new book called Growing Up in Disneyland. Ron DeFore is the author, and if that name kind of sounds familiar, he's also one of the sons of Ozzie and Harriet and Hazel co-star from the 50s and 60s, Don DeFore, who was also in many movies over his career, like Romance on the High Seas and 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. My co-host today, once again, my buddy, Hot Rod Bob Beck of the Great American Auto Scene, or GAS, G-A-A-S. All right, let's start us off. Ron, when did you know as a kid that your dad was a famous actor? Well, it's a good question. Uh, it, it happened when I got off the bus from uh, elementary school. I would probably have been about six, no, seven years old. And uh, my mom used to tell this story to everybody. And it was that little Ronnie came up to uh, uh, mother and looked her and said, Mom, is dad Don DeFore? <laughs> and you know, so obviously there was somebody or several several kids at school that had said, "Oh yeah, your dad's Don DeFore. He's a big star," you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> but you didn't know that in advance. You were how old? I would have been about seven years old, uh, and actually even before that, probably when I was about five, we were watching one of my dad's many films that he co-starred in. Uh, it was 30 seconds over Tokyo uh, with Spencer Tracy, Van Johnson, and there's a scene where they crash, and my dad, both arms are broken. And I remember, and I was younger, I was four or five, and, and you know, I didn't understand this. I thought this really happened. I was crying, and I was crawling up, hugging my dad. <laughs> dad to kind of explain, you know, that that really didn't happen. It was kind of make-believe, yeah. just a little bit. Right. Wow. So you had an opportunity to go through, in a sense, Hollywood at a very young age. I understand there were some angles to your dad. Uh, something about when he was on Hazel, which, of course, was a TV show about from starring Shirley Booth. Right. Sixties uh, ish. Well, uh, it, this was after Ozzie and Harriet. Right? Yes. Yeah. Da uh, Dad was uh, Ozzie and Harriet's first next door neighbor, Thorny, for the first five years of their show, fifty two to fifty seven, and then uh, there was a break there, and we can get to that later. That happened in Disneyland, uh -huh. but uh, on Hazel, uh, it premiered uh, fall of nineteen sixty one, and Dad was on the first four years. 
And then uh, NBC stupidly, well, they sold it to CBS, and CBS stupidly thought that they could save money, so they got rid of my dad and Whitney Blake, and it only lasted one uh, one season after that. Mm-hmm. But what you're getting at is the cool thing. Uh, I mean, the sponsor of Ozzy and Harriet was Coca-Cola. So, yeah, getting, uh, you know, cases of free Coke was cool. But uh, Ford was the sponsor of Hazel. And so we we got all of our Fords for a dollar. Wow. A dollar? (laughs) No, a dollar. Now, these were one-year leases. They they always wanted their stars to be driving, you know, the latest models. Ford was very smart at that, by the way. You'll notice in watching Hazel, uh, the family changed cars, like, you know, far more often than most people because they wanted their brand-new models being shown in in the episodes. So uh, these were one-year leases at a dollar. The dollar was to avoid uh, uh, gift tax. And uh, we, had, most of the time, had four cars, sometimes five. The neat story is that uh, early in the 60s, uh, Lee Iacocca, then head of Ford, invites my dad for a personal tour in Detroit of the Ford facilities. And part of that tour was showing him the highly guarded design uh, center section of the Ford Mustang. And my dad looked at that and he said, I definitely want one of those. And thank you for showing me the color palette because I want it in poppy red. Poppy red. (laughs) Wow. And so legend has it that the DeFore family had the very first Ford Mustang on the West Coast. And to be driving around that in Brentwood and the Pacific Palisades was just awesome. I've only been able to keep that car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because uh, later on, you know, because we kept getting new cars, so it got old and everything, and my parents wound up just giving it to me, and then I had it for a couple of years, wound up selling it for $500. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> ouch, oh, ouch. So you actually had... If not the first, one of the first, 64 and a half Mustangs it, in Southern California. Yeah, 64 and a half, poppy red, uh, a black interior, and convertible. Oh, a convertible yet still. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So do you still know the guy's name you sold it to? And <laughs> can we make a public appeal to give it back? Well, you <laughs> know, the VIN number. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's funny that you say that. I, I was working at KTLA at the time, and um, I sold it to him on a Friday. And This is an early lesson in, you know, how to sell used cars. You know, don't accept a check. And so I, you know, I five hundred at that time. I thought that was a pretty good deal. I can get a a good uh, Triumph motorcycle for that, which I did. And, 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 and uh, a good Triumph motorcycle. It, it was okay. It was a chopper yeah. that was about twelve years old. Yeah. Uh, so I come to work on Monday, and the Mustang is parked on the lot, and I go, "What the hell is this?" And I, there was no note or anything. The guy just left the keys on top of the car, and uh, obviously that check wasn't any good. Oh, wow. Oh. So from there, uh, I, I really can't even remember uh, who or what, but I probably sold it for about the same amount, and this time I didn't take a check. And he didn't work at KTLA or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No. that You know, you always wonder if I had only been able to keep a car somewhere down the line. That kind of is the car. I'm going to guess that's the car you would always want back. 
If you had a chance to get any car you ever owned back? No, I would not because I don't know if other 64 and a half Mustang owners with automatic transmission had the same thing, but we probably replaced that transmission two or three times. It really? did not. Yeah, I, at least ours. And so uh, that part of it, I don't like. The car that I had, there was a, a point in my life when I had the, the money uh, to try and own one of everything. And my favorite that I would buy back in a nanosecond was a completely restored, brand-new-looking 1986 Ferrari 328 GTS. Cosa Rosa Rosa Red with black interior. And that was the coolest car, even though I had a a Lamborghini Countach and a Rolls-Royce, and I could go on and on. I I had a a bunch of cool cars. That is the car. Because I I, I never liked the styling starting in the 90s. I mean, even today, to me, they all look like jelly beans. So that was kind of the last of the angular... um, you know, Magnum PI. That was the Magnum PI Ferrari. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sensing the pattern. Did, did you notice that, Bob? It's all yeah, red yeah, cars yeah. with black <laughs> interior. Yeah, right <laughs> red. Yeah, that's true. Well, tell me about the story about. And, and by the way, the reason we're bringing Ron in today, Ron DeFore, the son of Don DeFore from uh, Mozzie and Harriet, a lot of good movies. Uh, also, Hazel. Um, is he has a new book out we're going to talk a little bit about that and it's kind of something to do with disneyland which is fascinating in its own right but uh certainly from the car aspect we figured we'd start here um so you had gotten to a point where uh and go through that again where how did you come to decide you wanted to own every make of car and now we're not talking all at the same time well, some of them, yes. Okay. Yeah, th- there was a time. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of backing into this story, but if you like, if you well, guys like to just go you know, backwards, me, let me. Oh, it's the story <laughs> it's of cool. our lives, actually. So, yeah. so you, what were you doing that you could afford some really cool cars all at once? One of the chapters in this book. Well, let me just back up a little bit. Um, the The book is uh, a, an interesting combination of not only my dad's life and the many uh, feature films that he co-starred in and TV shows and stuff, but it's my perspective of growing up in a celebrity family. So that that title, Growing Up in Disneyland, is a metaphor for my life. And a little bit later, we'll tell you about why it's also a literal translation as well but so uh i literally had at least 20 careers i stopped counting and and i i used to love changing i i'd get bored after a year or two or, or so and i had some great you know uh positions at, at ktla associate director of the steve allen show i was the production coordinator at paramount television after that but i you know i got bored with these things uh when i finally finally moved to Washington, uh, and I won't tell you all the stuff in between that did that, I was doing public affairs, public relations for a government agencies. And uh, that the last few were at the Department of Transportation. And, and in fact, I worked at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the very agency that regulates the auto industry and promotes safety on our highways. Um, and I, I did all the public affairs, public relations and, and, and stuff there. So when I left, 
that's the knowledge I had gained and contacts I had gained. And so me and the head of NHTSA and another guy, we formed our own firm, Stratacom, which is still around today in 1995. And by three years later, we had built the largest automotive public affairs practice in the country. We were doing uh, huge, big safety programs for uh, GM, Ford, Chrysler, uh, sometimes Nissan. And uh, so uh, it was (laughs) very successful. And I was skyrocketing through the roof uh, wound up being in a 12,000-square-foot house on five acres with a tennis court and volleyball court and, you know, all sorts of things, and five garages. And at one time, oh. one time, <laughs> those garages had a Rolls-Royce, a Ferrari, a Lamborghini Countach, and then my wife was stuck with the Cadillac and Corvette. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, that's really uh, tough, yeah. I can't even explore that, yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Well, you know, you you lived the dream, and you worked in the industry. You were on the side, you went on, on the side that kind of went after the manufacturers for safety issues, and then you started protecting them. Well, yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, and keep in mind, I was never a car guy. I'm still not a car guy. You know, I like a nice... You're uh, a car guy for the episode. Uh, okay, then when, you're done, when you walk out of the studio, you won't be a car guy anymore. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm sure some of your listeners are going, yeah, after that, I'm, I'm sure he's after, not. After we've been on now for just, uh, what, 10 minutes, and you've already given some great car stories. You're a car guy. Don't worry about it. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's funny you uh, mentioned that, Bob, because, yes... Uh, uh, in the beginning, we were doing a whole bunch of safety programs. In fact, we produced, still to this day, the largest uh, automotive safety program sponsored by a, uh, a car company for the Ford Motor Company. They, g- they gave us $30 million to uh, develop Boost America. And this was the uh, late 90s, uh, early turn of the century, uh, when ca- parents, caregivers were not putting their kids in a booster seat. They were going right from an infant seat uh, to belts, and it was killing mm-hmm. kids. And well, see, this this was our expertise, as we had worked at, at uh, NHTSA, the, you know, the regulatory. So, so we knew all the safety groups. We knew kind of the leading edge of things that really still needed to be done. So we'd bring those to a car company and say, here's a great one for you. And uh, uh, the centerpiece of the program was giving away a million booster seats. We brought United Way into the thing. We held events in every state. And this was a program that ran for like three, four years. And uh, I even produced a uh, a neat little uh, short movie with Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, you know, showing how to use the booster seats. And uh, so... Then we started helping, as you were alluding to, Bob, uh, help the car companies fight things like (laughs) cafe standards, (laughs) those terrible, terrible, awful fuel economy standards, you know. Uh Uh, And there was a bill in Congress uh, that uh, wanted to raise cafe standards from 27.5 miles per gallon to 40 miles per gallon. Well, you know, it sounds like I'm an evil person for wanting to, to to uh, try to block that, but you know, 
we would educate the media and people saying, you, you know, you can't just wave a magic wand and, you know, tell them they have to do that and they're going to be do, able to do that without any consequences. Um, right. And uh, as a matter of fact, during that whole process, there was a congressional uh, act that created the Partnership for a New Generation of Vehicles. How's that for a government program? Five years of, of government uh, engineers working with the big three to develop a family-sized car that would get 80 miles per gallon. Oh, and, yeah. and at the end of that, now, listen, we, we held a press conference at the Ronald Reagan uh, building in Washington, D.C. with Al Gore and the, the <laughs> CEOs of all three companies to unveil each company's PNGV concept car. And guess what? They all got 80 miles per gallon. And I was dealing with reporters that were saying, well, wow. So, you know, when are we going to see these? And I'd say, well, let's, let's interview the CEO. And they all had the same answer. They said, these things would cost more than Ferraris. Are you kidding? <laughs> Who's going to buy them? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reality of, of some of that, but yeah, I, I, and, and I came from the OEM side, so I can remember dealing with a lot of what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and uh, so, you know, fuel economy was one of them, and then uh, the turn yeah. of the century there. Uh, and we, and by the way, on the fuel economy thing, we built the largest uh, coalition that I think the auto, certainly the auto industry, maybe any industry, had ever built. It was called the Coalition for Vehicle Choice. Here's another one. Oh, Coalition for Vehicle Choice. CBC. CBC. It okay. ran It ran for 12 years, and its specific purpose was to keep cafe standards right where they were. And we did. <laughs> we did for 12 years. I served as their spokesperson. So I've, I've literally done hundreds, if not thousands, of, of interviews because for the media, I was the bad guy. You know, we needed to get the soundbite from the guy that's, that's spewing ridiculous anti-environmental stuff, you know, and, and I was, so I was the uh, industry's junkyard dog, but I loved it because I knew everything that I was saying was honest and it was real. And, uh, and, and so anyway, so when George Bush came into office, some smart uh, car company lobbyist thought, ah, we don't need this CBC thing. Bush ain't going to do anything. Well, surprise, surprise, he did. And so you all might remember the turn of the century there, the onslaught against the SUV led by mm-hmm. Keith Bradshard at the New York Times. Right. He he had an article almost every day, and so er, almost every day I'd have reporters calling and saying, "Well, so what's your response?" And I'd, I'd have to remind them. I'd say, like Jane O'Donnell at USA Today, I'd say, "Jane, I you know CVC's been shut down. I, you know what, I, what hat am I wearing?" Well, you worked <laughs> at NHTSA, and I said, "But I don't have a client in this fight. I, I have nothing to gain by giving you a quote." You know, yeah. and uh, so it's we did what I don't know if any other PR firm ever ever did. We created our own client because we saw a need in the media marketplace. The car companies, when those SUV stories were coming out, they didn't want to comment. They didn't want to be the ones sticking their necks out. And so uh, we created SUV Owners of America, very similar to CVC, 
But what we changed is we did not want to get direct funding from the auto industry, so so we wanted to be able to say whatever the heck we wanted to say. Absolutely. And uh, what I did is I just created a clever way of charging a heck of a lot of money for ads on our website. (laughs) (laughs) And then you'll have to look at things right now, and what's gone is the cars are gone, and they're being replaced by SUVs. Ford's dropping uh, yeah, the car lines. Yes, GM's uh, dropping cars. It's it's like coming full circle. Now, Bob, you may know the guy that uh, ran our Detroit office in between gigs. He was vice president of Ford, Chrysler, and Nissan in the communications area. And in between uh, Ford and, and Chrysler, we had him run our Detroit office. Do you know Jason Vines? Yes. Well, well, Jason ran our Detroit office, and it was right when we were had created this SUV Owners of America. So Jason and I, who's, who's still a very close friend, and we love laughing together. As you as you know, he started as a stand-up comedian. So he and I would love having having the uh, running this SUV Owners of America because we could say whatever the heck they want. Now, am I able to use any language uh, I want on this show? I'll edit it. <laughs> okay. So uh, at first we'd got I was dealing with the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, you know, all these big uh, things and they they'd go, "Now what is this SUV owners of memory?" I mean, yeah, come on, you guys are just a front for the auto industry. And and uh and I, first of all, I I'd say, well, no, no, we're getting money from revenue on the website ads. And, and we did. We had recreation groups and others, not just, yeah, I've been on your site and I see, um, you know, Chrysler, Ford and GM are are running banner ads there. And I'd say, well, look at the pages of your own paper. <laughs> who's who's the <laughs> yeah. biggest advertiser? That's true. And so once we could get back that, let's talk the issues. So I did something uh, strategic. I was being interviewed by The Guardian, which is a... Uh, a UK uh, publication, but a big publication. And it was this uh, story about environmentalists going around putting phony tickets on SUVs saying you're killing the planet and all this kind of stuff. (laughs) So I decided to use the most foul language that I could so that I could ultimately show this to other reporters saying, you tell me what auto industry executive would be able to get away using that language and still have their job. And and one of the tech I even have this in my book. The, the the very last quote, besides all the other bad language I used in, in the uh, article, is these environmentalists need to get a job, and most of what they say is... <laughs> <laughs> okay, but the big question here, SUV owners of America, at the time, did you own an SUV? That is so funny because I will now, for the first time, ever reveal what happened. I was being interviewed in Washington by a, a well-known guy in Washington, Chris Core, who's a real uh, uh, car guy, and and he's saying, uh, you know, it was a long interview, uh, and he was on uh, at that time WMAL, which is a big station, and. He gets to the point, he says, well, Ron, what kind of SUV do you drive? And this was when I had all these fancy cars. <laughs> and I, I, it took me a split second, but, you know, I said, Chris, I'm, I've been looking at uh, Hummers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which I had, but, I, and, and, uh, but two weeks later, I owned a Suburban. <laughs> uh-huh. right. I didn't want that question to come up again. Well, yeah, you 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 finally you got the the suburban, but uh, 
Were you, did you get the long wheelbase? <laughs> yes, I did. Hey, the Tahoe. you know, when you have five acres and most of it's wood, uh, yeah. woods, yeah, you have a lot of uh, stuff around the house that you actually need an SUV for. Part of this, of course, the title of the book is called Growing Up in Disneyland. And it's part about Ron, of course, and part about your dad, as you were talking about. And if you're of a certain age, which I am and Bob's a little over, um, <laughs> Thanks, Randy. Sure, yeah. Bob. Anytime. There, there's the, tr- there's the bus, and just crawl right under it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So a lot of us of a certain age do remember, in the back of our minds, that your dad had a little restaurant in Frontierland. Yes. Mm-hmm. Tell yeah. us about that. Yeah. Well, the the title of the book, "Growing Up in Disneyland," is is not just a metaphor for my life growing up in a celebrity family, but it is literal in that dad owned Don DeFore's Silver Banjo Barbecue restaurant in Frontierland, right next to Aunt Jemima's, when Aunt Jemima's was there. This would have been uh, 1957 to 1962. Uh, He had a five-year lease, and uh, so... Uh, we were down there all the time. Uh, one of the chapters is titled, Gee, Do We Have to Go to Disneyland Again? Because <laughs> seriously, and, and, and by the way, that's why Disney Legal Department does not like this book. I can tell you they Uh-oh. don't. Uh, I, they dragged their feet for 10 weeks and delayed uh, publication. But as the head uh, lawyer finally told me, she said, Disney uh, Enterprises would never and can never tell an author what to write. It's the First Amendment, but they can certainly tell you what photos that they have the copyright on that they're going to allow. And there was about five photos. They said, well, we're just not going to let you use those. But it didn't affect the book. So anyway, so yeah, for like five years, I mean, it was... Uh, it was awesome in one respect, especially when I could bring a friend, and you know, then I'd do all the tricks, like the the, the things that uh, Disney legal doesn't like, like let my parents walk ahead while we snuck in the bushes of the Jungle Cruise ride, waited for a boat, and <laughs> pretended we were monkeys. You know, I mean, <laughs> the attorney just said, you know, Rob, we really don't want to be promoting you know, something like that. <laughs> So you grew up now. I never realized that Disney had uh, basically a, a contract operators of uh, well, especially name people. Well, and that's yeah. the interesting thing. So yes, uh, there was actually one other celebrity, uh, Art Linkletter, who owned uh-huh. the Kodak concession on Main Street. Okay, but really? he, he wasn't allowed to have his name there. Um, oh. And I need to back up a second. Well, how did Dad get? to be good friends with Walt Disney. Well, it mm-hmm. was a little-known thing about my dad. My dad was president of the uh, Television Academy uh, in 1954, and he sold the first national broadcast, coast-to-coast, of the Emmy Awards show to NBC in 1954. And as many people, and I've got letters from NBC and others, uh, that many other presidents and boards of the Academy had tried to do that and failed, and one of them was Walt Disney. And Walt called my dad and said, you know, I want to 
get to know the guy that did this more because Walt had his own show and planned a lot more things. Right. And, and and the idea of getting a national exposure for awards that he might win uh, meant a lot to him. He was that was smart. on ABC at the time, The Wonderful World of Color, right? Is that what uh, you're talking about? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. And uh, so uh, Walt invited uh, he and the PR guy. Well, actually, my dad said, can I bring Bud Colson? And I'm going to get back to him why I mentioned that. Uh, out to Burbank and Walt gave him a personal tour and part of that was uh, going into a highly guarded soundstage that included a lot of the animatronics that would eventually make their way into Disneyland because this would have been about 1954, 55. Uh, So fast forward to 1955, the DeFore family are in the opening day parade riding in, there's a car story, riding in the Autopia cars on on Main (laughs) Street. As my brother always points out, that's probably the only time those cars have been off of the, you know, Autopia ride. But I've got photos. That's actually the top photo of the book is the the whole family riding in the uh, Autopia cars. And then it was uh, about a year later that my dad gets a call from Bud Colson, who says, hey, by the way, Walt hired me. (laughs) (laughs) Walt Walt hired me to handle all all of the lessees in the park, because there there were. There was Carnation, and there was, you know... what was the chicken place? I'm drawing a blank. But anyway, so Bud Colson, that was the guy handling this. And he says, Don, I remember you telling me all these stories about how do you how you cooked your way through college, which is true. <laughs> and he says, uh, Frito-Lay decided they want a bigger spot in Frontierland closer to the front gate. And so they're vacating that space. How would you like to come in there and have a barbecue restaurant? And my dad, being the adventurous guy that he was, just said, sounds good to me. (laughs) (laughs) And isn't it true, though, that you once played a role for Walt Disney during a parade? Ah, that's one of the photos I was told I couldn't use. Oh, really? They, oh. Yeah, they claimed a copy. It's bizarre. It's weird that they didn't claim copyright on the photo that I've got there because that was obviously taken by a Disneyland PR guy. And so you would think they'd hold. But no, the original photo I wanted there is a photo of my, my, uh, my sister and I when I would have been about uh, seven, eight years old, um, riding in a Christmas parade uh, with Walt Disney sitting next to us. And the way that happened was in those days, they used to have a celebrity atop certain places in each land. And my dad was Frontierland up on top of the Golden Horseshoe. And uh, and right before the parade, uh, somebody yells up, hey, Don, Walt's on the phone for you. So my dad has to climb down. And he said, yeah, what's up? He says, I'm down here at the front gate and my grandchildren haven't shown up. I can't go through the parade without any kids. Did you bring your kids? <laughs> and, so, and, and so he says, sure, I'll send you a couple you were you were standing. Yeah, so I'll send a couple down to the front gate. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, uh, Rent-A-Kid, great program, yes. Yeah, I like that. I wonder if that's going to be on your IMDb profile. I don't know. Yeah. I do have an IMDb page. He does. Which, which yeah, I it surprised it me. I mean, I didn't create it or anything, but be, because I was in the first episode of Hazel as an extra, they figured I ought to have my own page. And you were on for something else, too. What was that? That was, um, oh, you were on This Is Your Life? 
Oh, actually, yeah, they, they list, uh, this is your life. Oh, God, that is great. And it's on YouTube, by the way. It's on my channel, and other people have yeah. put it up there. But that is one of the coolest things, uh, profile of our family. And uh, and the, the beginning part where they surprised my dad with Ozzy and Harriet, because uh, there's a hesitation there, and you don't know whether it's Ozzy's life or, or Harriet's or my dad's. And the look on my dad's face, because dad told this story many times. He says, I thought for sure it was going to be Ozzy. You know, why would it be me? And so they 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 did the whole profile of my dad's uh, life and, and flew in a whole bunch of relatives and friends, and it was great. And so I was uh, three years old, I think. When that and so for some reason IMDb <laughs> felt I needed a page <laughs> for at that. three years old. Sure, no, that's great well, though. Not. How about that, huh? Did they let you get a SAG card? <laughs> uh, yeah. Did you have, did you say anything? <laughs> no, I, actually, uh, uh, just yelling and cheering. Uh, but that that was the first time I had to get a social security card. When you were three. Oh. oh, wait. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm mixing it up. That was when I was in the first episode of Hazel. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> oh, okay. When, okay. That was, what, 11? Yeah, I would have been uh, 11 years old. You, exactly. you weren't interested in acting, huh? Not really. No. Uh, but as we discussed earlier, I was on the other side of the camera. Sure. For, well, after watching your dad break his arms on TV at a young age, you were probably <laughs> yeah, right. ruined for life. I think that could be very well what it is. <laughs> Wow. And, of course, getting back to the car scene, I, I think you were telling me some, you know, your dad had an opportunity to drive all sorts of interesting cars, I'd imagine. Uh, you know, I've always wondered. My dad wasn't a flashy guy. Uh, uh, what I wondered, once I got into the, the car industry and understood more about the various ownerships of this and that, I thought, you know, he could have had a Lincoln. <laughs> why why was he driving around in a in a galaxy or you know i'm sure he could have uh, swung getting a, a lincoln but he was never a real flashy guy i mean he didn't wear flashy jewelry or anything and and uh, that's the answer why he didn't i would have <laughs> <laughs> yeah Says the guy who once had a Ferrari, a Lamborghini, and a Rolls at the same time. Now, let me let me finish that story. Sure. I, I, I don't really throw that out to, to brag because I don't have those no, things anymore. But um, something interesting happened. I used to love pulling up in the red Ferrari. And I used to love, it was usually younger guys, you know, just admiring this thing in a gas station. They'd walk around. They'd look at, oh, they'd go, oh, my God, what, you know. And this is the one that looked like. Magnum PI. Yeah, yeah. The original. Yeah. What was it? The three o three twenty eight GTS. Okay. And and, uh, and I mean, this thing was so pristine. They thought it was new. And I would love playing the game, saying, "Well, you know, what year do you think it is?" And they go, oh, and they they'd have a tough. I don't know. Uh, is it brand new or you know? <laughs> it's nineteen eighty six. They go, "Wow, that is so awesome." And and so I used to eat up. And and I needed that kind of admiration, and that's also why I had the big house and, you know, the five-egg. And I was very materialistic, very overly uh, to a point of being sick. And I remember that one day pulling out of the garage, and it was an incredible epiphany that hit me. And I realized right then what I was trying to do is replace the admiration that I had 
whenever I'd be with my dad and people recognized him and it would give me this wonderful, warm, special feeling. And once my dad passed on, and even earlier than that, once his uh, recognition started fading, um, I, I, I was trying to fill it with stuff. And it was just amazing because right then it all left me. I, I started selling off everything. We sold the house and we did everything. I no longer needed, nor to this day, need, you know, things to prove to myself or others that I've made it. Mm-hmm. It was it was an incredible thing. What are you driving now? A Ferrari. No. It's <laughs> <laughs> not red, so it's okay, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Actually, after fighting the Zev mandate in California, I find myself driving a Chevy Volt. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Oh, I, really? I'm on my second Chevy Volt. Now, I, I, I counterbalance it because I have a Reagan bumper sticker on it. <laughs> no, no, but uh, I, if, if, if you haven't driven electric, you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, when In the early 90s, GM uh, at the time was a client. We went from GM to Ford and Chrysler and back. Uh, but GM was, and they let me borrow the EV1 prototype oh wow that's now, yeah do you guys know what the what it was called before they decided to change the name to ev1 no <laughs> we actually counseled them being our safety guys ah, okay. we, we said it probably shouldn't be called the impact <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that, that does sound like gm uh yeah. yeah yeah let's let's go for something different anyway so they they lend me one of the prototypes that the uh dc office had for a weekend, and this was before uh, the uh, the electric motors had any governors on it at all. And I don't know if you guys know this, but those originals could beat a Corvette in the quarter mile. I mean, the, the oh, just because really? of the oh, torque. Oh, the torque is just uh, it. Yeah. And I, I and it's funny. Uh, uh, Bill Nowak, who was the head of communications in their DC office, who was actually our client. I came back, and I, he was wanting us to work on fighting the Zev mandate in California. And I came back, and I said, hey, I want one of these things. What, why are you guys against these things? And he got all pissed off at me because he said, Ron, you're supposed, we need to fight these things. I said, but, man, that's a cool car. And that's, I was smitten with electric, and that would have been 92 or 93. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and so as soon as the Volt, I mean, I followed the whole history of the Volt, and I thought, and that that makes a lot of sense so that you're not stranded. You don't have range anxiety, as they call it in the business, uh, with a pure electric. And so I've loved my Volts every, ever since, and I'm kind of sorry that they're discontinuing it. Well, it's kind of interesting because they, they, they first released the, their first electric car through Saturn, but didn't sell them. They only leased them. Uh, well, exactly, and but for good reason. And you know, you probably know why. The lawyers uh, structured it like that. And uh, although the Michael Moore uh, movie, <laughs> what's it called? It's, it's something uh, about uh, GM killed the electric vehicle or right, something. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's so much BS. Look, <laughs> you know, the owners wanted to keep it. 
GM, for very good reason, wanted to only lease them because these were brand new. They had no idea, you know, that the batteries might catch on fire like some of them did. And and they didn't want the liability. So they wanted to be able to and, and also they wanted to be able to take them back in, you know, pull them apart, study them and, you know, learn from the experience. But they certainly for liability reasons didn't want those things hanging out there. Hmm. Yeah, I, I know we, we've uh, we've seen a thing with uh, one of the movie directors that's well known did not turn his in, and they still haven't gone after him. Oh, he still got it and loves it. That's interesting. Does he still it? drive it on the road though? Yeah, they're or, still licensable. There's nothing. Right. Uh, but the movie director does he drive it on his own? Uh, from the video that I saw, the interview of him, yeah, he still drives it. He keeps it on his uh, <clears throat> grape farm yeah uh okay I know winery that he's got yeah so but he, he doesn't he's drive it, it out on the streets per se yeah probably mm. at this point but yeah he yeah, i mean i i think those cars were cool looking i think they were neat sure. yeah yeah no and they were without a without a governor and i worked in racing as well and last night for example we had a a, a tesla that was blowing the doors off the new supercharged Hellcats. That doesn't surprise me. That that is the car that I'm looking at. As much as I don't want to be flashy, but uh, with uh, the Volt now being discontinued, um, no. and and you know I was always worried, like others, with the range anxiety. But now with Tesla, if you spend enough money, you can get one that'll go pretty much uh, as far as a gasoline. Um, yeah, I'm I'm looking at that. Yeah. Very possible out there. A lot of, lot of interesting products coming out on the market here. All right, where do we find your book, Growing Up in Disneyland? Well, the best way is by going to the book's website, growingupindisneyland.com, uh, because there, you know, you can read some stuff. I have a five-minute uh, video that tells you a little bit more about it. Uh, my uh, book signing schedules and media interviews are, are listed there, and, and a, a lot of reviews, which I, it's really... Uh, been very gratifying to get uh, almost all five star reviews on Amazon and elsewhere. Uh, and then, so you have an option of just clicking on and buying it on Amazon. I mean, you can really buy it anyway. But I also offer uh, the option of paying a little bit more, and you can send it uh, to the email address uh, that's listed there, and you can buy either a hard copy or a paperback autographed copy that I will. Mm-hmm sign and send out to you very cool very cool and i i love the picture on the front of the, of the book of the autopia cars because these are the first generation that were very rounded and uh i guess that's your dad sitting in he's getting chauffeured yes. in his right right yeah they didn't want any of us driving them but uh yeah they had a disneyland employee uh driving each one of us that's so cool. How about that? That's in fact, Bob and I were just recently at a show, car show, where one of those old Disney cars was yeah. revamped. I guess what it, the guy did is he bought the body. Wow! And uh, Disney was selling the bodies. Disneyland was, and uh, I want to say this is what Bob era sixties or so. Yeah, sixties. It was kind of Corvette esque. It had the uh, the sloped nose and it was very angular. Wow! Versus and he, and he, uh, the other ones. And he put it on some sort of. Uh, chassis and got an engine in there and he was cruising around the the cruise lane the driving lane yeah he can't drive it on the street but he was cruising but that was actually very cool yeah that was actually very cool all right so 
you've told us some of your car stories and and all, but now that we know what you have and what's in your garage, name me the top three cars you would like to get someday. Everybody's got that list. What's the top three cars on your I want that someday list? That I'll really follow through and get, or not just would, would like. Is this, is this? Well, if the book goes really well, oh, you no. may be getting all. Hey, three listen, of them. I got to win a lottery ticket before the book is going to pay pay for itself. Um, I, I can tell you one of them, and that is, well, maybe two of them would be the Tesla with the high end battery. Uh, but I would love to have. I've already had the Ferrari 328. I love, have always loved the 360 Spider, okay. which was in the uh, mid to late 90s. Uh, I, 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 that's my favorite of, of all the Ferraris. Again, I, I usually don't go for the latest uh, fancy uh, styling, even in cars like, like that. Uh, I like the classic look. All right. If you were, if you were going to get a car from the 60s, and I know the Mustang is high in your uh, – your your list of cars that you grew up with, but what would you want to be driving uh, a vintage car? <sighs> it's funny. I, I, I hate to uh, let your your vintage guys in your audience down, but yeah, I've never I've never been that vintage. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, I've already told you I wouldn't want that Mustang back, even though you know most people would die to 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 have that. Um, I don't. know. It might be. It might be one of the vintage Corvettes. Okay. Uh, uh, before we moved out here, when I lived out in the valley, we did have a '77, even though it had you know mechanical challenges. But I loved that. Uh, well, that's a Corvette. Yeah. 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 That that uh, I loved that yeah. style. <laughs> that was good. Okay, oh. Bob. It's my turn to jump under the bus. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, right, when you lived in the Valley, and one of the things that Valley kids did back in those days was cruise Van Nuys Boulevard. You and I are, are in the same age group. Did you ever go out to Van Nuys Boulevard? No, because keep in mind, I grew up in Brentwood, <laughs> and oh, that was okay. like going out in the country. Um, yeah. Uh, but but I, I will tell something that's very much related to that is that we had a, a great lake house on Lake Millerton which is 20 miles northeast of Fresno. And so Ooh. what we did do, even when I was like 13, my parents were asleep, we'd sneak the station wagon out and drive <laughs> drive down Blackstone Boulevard. That's why when, when American Graffiti came out, I thought, wow, that's exactly what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's nice to know. I think uh, something we knew a little bit. Now, was it a Ford? Uh, It would have been, and I'll tell you one last thing here, Mm -hmm. that that my dad had a weird thing with with the station wagons that we had Uh, on at least three of them. He had these huge truck horns placed on both sides of the hood. I mean, these things, they were like the size of a trombone. And, and he had some guy hook up an air pump in the, in the trunk. And, I, you know, I don't know why my dad did that. But 
And and one thing I remember specifically on a vacation up at Lake Gregory, I think it was, we were driving around a corner and some guy's like fishing at the edge of the water. And my dad just says, watch this. And he goes, Prom! and the guy falls in the water. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Unless you were the fisherman, and that would be yeah, right. Yeah. He's probably still looking for those horns. <laughs> I'll find that guy with those horns, and I'll yeah. If you want to have a fun read, growingupindisneyland.com. I'm I'm telling you, it's been getting great reviews, and I think you'll enjoy it. That's Ron DeFore, the son of the late actor Don DeFore. Again, check out his book at growingupindisneyland.com. And remember to subscribe to us at Talking About Cars, the podcast on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, and at KNX1070.com. Click, of course, the audio tab. So that way you can be notified when a new podcast is uploaded and you won't miss a thing. And if you're on iTunes, or if it still exists by the time you hear this, please give us five stars, review us, leave a comment about what you think of the podcast. Our website is talkingaboutcars.net and follow us on our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And also follow Hot Rod Bob Beck on his Great American Auto Scene accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, as well as his videos on YouTube and at Got Gas. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars.